0: I will explain that some years later John married the girl, and the mating was a very happy one. After John had been to King's College two years we find in the faded and yellow old letter book an item written by the father to the effect that, our Johnny is doing well at college. He seems sedate and intent on gaining knowledge, but rather inclines to law instead of the ministry. Dr. Johnson was succeeded by Dr. Miles Cooper, a fellow of Oxford who used to wear his mortar cap and scholar's gown up Broadway. In young Jay's veins there was not a drop of British blood, of his eight great-grandparents, five were French and three Dutch, a fact he once intimated in the Oxomians' presence, and then it was explained to the youth that if such were the truth it would be as well to conceal it. Alexander Hamilton got along very well with Dr. Cooper, but John Jay found himself rusticated shortly before graduation. Some years after this Dr. Cooper hastily climbed the back fence, leaving a sample of his gown on a picket, while Alexander Hamilton held the wig at bay at the front door. Cooper sailed very soon for England, anathematizing, the bursted country, in classic Latin as the ship passed out of the Narrows. England is a good place for him, said the laconic John Jay. So John Jay was to be a lawyer. And the only way to be a lawyer in those days was to work in a lawyer's office. A goodly source of income to all established lawyers was the sums they derived for taking embryo blackstones into their keeping. The greater a man's reputation as a lawyer, the higher he placed his fee for taking a boy in. In those days there were no printed blanks, and a simple lease was often a day's work to write out, so it was not difficult to keep the boys busy. Besides that, they took care of the great man's horse, blacked his boots, swept the office, and ran errands during the third year of apprenticeship. If all went well, the young man was duly admitted to the bar. A stiff examination kept out the rank outsiders. But the nomination by a reputable attorney was equivalent to admittance. For all members knew that if you opposed an attorney today, tomorrow he might oppose you. To such an extent was this system of taking students care that, in 1768, we find New York lawyers alarmed by the awful influx of young barristers upon this province. So steps were taken to make all attorneys agree not to have more than two apprentices in their office at one time. About the same time the Boston newspaper, called the Soninal, shows there was a similar state of overproduction in Boston, only the trouble there was principally with the doctors, for doctors were then turned loose in the same way, carrying a diploma from the old physician with whom they had matriculated and duly graduated, law schools and medical colleges, be it known are comparatively modern institutions not quite so new, however, as business colleges, but pretty nearly so. And now in Chicago there is a, Barber's University, which issues diplomas to men who can manipulate a razor and shears. Whereas, until yesterday, boys learned it to be barbers by working in a barber's shop. The good old way was to pass a profession along from man to man, and it is so yet in a degree for no man is allowed to practice either medicine or law until he has spent some time in the office of a practitioner in good standing, in the Catholic Church, and also in the Episcopal. The novitiate is expected to serve for a time under an older clergyman, but all the other denominations have broken away, and now spring the fledgling on the world straight from the factory, several other of his children having sorely disappointed him. Peter J. seemed to center his ambitions on his boy John. So we find him paying Benjamin Kissam, the eminent lawyer, £200 in good coin of the colony to take John Jay as apprentice for five years. John went at it and began copying those endless, wordy documents in which the old time attorney used to delight. John sat at one end of the table, and at the other was seated one Lindley Murray, at the mention of whose name terror used to seize my soul. Murray has written some good, presentable English to the effect that young Jay, even at that time, had the inclination and ability to focus his mind upon the subject in hand. He used to work just as steadily when his employer was away as when he was in the office, a fact which the grammarian seemed to regard as rather strange. In a year we find that when Mr. Kissam went away he left the keys of the safe in John Jay's hands, with orders what to do in case of emergencies. Thus does responsibility gravitate to him who can shoulder it, and trust to the man who deserves it. It was in Thysom's office that Jay acquired that habit of reticence and serene poise which, becoming fixed in character, made his words carry such weight in later years. He never gave snapshot opinions, or talked at random, or voiced any sentiment for which he could not give a reason. His companions were usually men much older than he. At the Moot Club, he took part with James Duane, who was to be New York's first Continental mayor, Governor Morris who had not at that time acquired the wooden leg which he once snatched off and brandished with happy effect before a Paris mob, and Samuel Jones, who was to take his prentice and drill that strong man, DeWitt Clinton, before his years of apprenticeship were over. John Jay, the quiet, the modest, the reticent, was known as a safe and competent lawyer on having pushed him forward as associate counsel in various difficult cases. Meantime, Certain chests of tea had been dumped into Boston Harbor, and the example had been followed by the Mohawks in New York. British oppression had made many Tories lukewarm, and then English rapacity had transformed these Tories into Whigs. Jay was one of these, and in newspapers and pamphlets, and from the platform, he had pleaded the cause of the colonies. Opposition crystallized his reasons, and threats only served to make him reaffirm the truths he had stated so prominent had his appearances made his name, that one fine day he was nominated to attend the first Congress of the Colonies to be held in Philadelphia, in August, 1774, we find him leaving his office in New York in charge of a clerk, and riding horseback over to the town of Elizabeth, there joining his father-in-law, and the two starting for Philadelphia, on the road they fell in with John Adams, who kept a diary, that night at the tavern where they stopped, The sharp-eyed Yankee recorded the fact of meeting these new friends and added, Mr. Jay is a young gentleman of the law, and Mr. Scott says a hard student and a very good speaker, and so they journeyed on across the state to Trenton and down the Delaware River to Philadelphia, visiting, and cautiously discussing great issues as they went. Samuel Adams, too, was in the party, as reticent as Jay. Jay was 29 and Samuel Adams 52 years old, but they became good friends. And Samuel once quietly said to John Adams, that man Jay is young in years, but he has an old head. Jay was the youngest man of the convention, save one. When the second Congress met, Jay was again a delegate. He served on several important committees, and drew up a statement that was addressed to the people of England, but he was recalled to New York before the supreme issue was reached. And thus, through accident, the Declaration of Independence does not contain the signature of John Jay. In 1778, Jay was chosen president of the Continental Congress to succeed that other patriotic Huguenot, Lawrence. The following year he was selected as the man to go to Spain, to secure from that country certain friendly favors. His reception there was exceedingly frosty, and the mention of his two years on the ragged edge of court life at Madrid, in later years brought to his face a grim smile. Spain's diplomatic policy was smooth hypocrisy and rank and truth and all her promises, it seems, were made but to be broken. Jay's negotiations were only partially successful, but he came to know the language, the country and the people in a way that made his knowledge very valuable to America. By 1781, England had begun to see that to compel the absolute submission of the colonies was more of a job than she had anticipated. News of victories was duly sent to the mother country at regular intervals. But with these glad tidings were requests for more troops, and requisitions for ships and arms. The American army was a very hard thing to find. It would fight one day, to retreat the next, and had a way of making midnight attacks and flank movements that, to say the least, were very confusing. Then it would separate, to come together a lord knows where. This made Lord Cornwallis once write to the Home Secretary, I could easily defeat the enemy. If I could find him and engage him in a fair fight, he seemed to think it was no fair, forgetting the old proverb which has something to say about love and war. Finally, Cornwallis got the thing his soul desired a fair fight. He was then acting on the defensive. The fight was short and sharp, and Colonel Alexander Hamilton, who led the charge, in ten minutes planted the stars and stripes on his ramparts. That night Cornwallis was the guest of Washington and the next day a dinner was given in his honor. He was then obliged to write to the Home Secretary, we have met the enemy, and we are theirs, but of course he did not express it just exactly that way. Then it was that King George, for the first time, showed a disposition to negotiate for peace, as peace commissioners, America named Franklin, John Adams, Lawrence, J. and Jefferson. Jefferson refused to leave his wife, who was in delicate health, Adams was at the Hague, just closing up a very necessary loan. Lawrence had been sent to Holland on a diplomatic mission, and his ship having been overhauled by a British man of war, he was safely in that historic spot, the Tower of London. So Jay and Franklin alone met the English commissioners, and Jay stated to them the conditions of peace. In a few weeks Adams arrived, still keeping a diary. In that diary is found this item, the French call newly Washington Delaine negotiation. A very flattering compliment indeed, to which I have no right, but sincerely think it belongs to Mr. J. J. quitted Paris in May, 1784, having been gone from his native land eight years. When he reached New York there was a great demonstration in his honor. Triumphal arches were erected across Broadway. Houses and stores were decorated with bunting. Cannons boomed, and bells rang. The freedom of the city was presented to him in a gold box. With an exceedingly complimentary address, engrossed on parchment, and signed by 100 of the leading citizens, Jay spent just one day in New York, and then rode on horseback up to the old farm at Rye, Westchester County, to see his father. That evening there was a service of thanksgiving at the village church, after which the citizens repaired to the Jay mansion, one story high and 80 feet long, where a barrel of cider was tapped, and a gross of church wardens passed around with free tobacco for all, John Jay stood on the front porch and made a modest speech just five minutes long, among other things saying he had come home to be a neighbor to them, having quit public life for good, but he refused to talk about his own experiences in Europe, his reticence, however, was made up for by good old Peter Jay, who assured the people that John Jay was America's foremost citizen, and in this statement he was backed up by the village preacher, with not a descending voice from the assembled citizens. It is rather curious or it isn't. I'm not sure which how most statesmen have quit public life several times during their careers. Like the prima donnas who make farewell tours. The ingratitude of republics is proverbial. But to limit ingratitude to republics shows a lack of experience. The progeny of the men who tired of hearing Aristides called the just are very numerous. Of course it is easy to say that he who expects gratitude does not deserve it. But the fact remains that the men who know it are yet stung by calumny when it comes their way. That fine demonstration in Jay's honor was in great part to overwhelm and stamp out the undertone of growl and snarl that filled the air. Many said that peace had been gained at awful cost. That Jay had deferred to royalty and trifled with the wishes of the people in making terms. And now Jay had got home. Back to his family and farm. Back to quiet and rest. The long, hard fight had been won and America was free. For eight years had he toiled and striven and planned, much had been accomplished not all he hoped, but much. He had done his best for his country, his own affairs were in bad shape, Congress had paid him eagerly, and now he would turn public life over to others and live his own life. All through life men reach these places where they say, here will we build three tabernacles, but out of the silence comes the imperative voice, arise, and get the hence, for this is not thy rest and now the war was over. Peace was concluded, but war leaves a country in chaos. The long, slow work of reconstruction and of binding up a nation's wounds must follow. America was independent, but she had yet to win from the civilized world the recognition that she must have in order to endure. Jay was importuned by Washington to take the position of Secretary of Foreign Affairs, one of the most important offices to be filled. He accepted and discharged the exacting duties of the place for five years. Then came the adoption of the Federal Constitution, and the election of Washington as President of the United States. Washington wrote to Jay, There must be a court, perpetual and supreme, to which all questions of internal dispute between states or people be referred. This court must be greater than the executive, greater than any individual state, separated and apart from any political party. You must be the first official head of the executive. And Jay, as every schoolboy knows, was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. By his sagacity, his dignity, his knowledge of men, and love of order and uprightness, he gave it that high place which it yet holds, and which it must hold. For when the decisions of the Supreme Court are questioned by a state or people, the fabric of our government is but a spider's web through which anarchy and in reason will stalk. In 1794, came serious complications with Great Britain, growing out of the construction of terms of peace made in Paris 11 years before. Someone must go to Great Britain and make a new treaty in order to preserve our honor and save us from another war. Franklin was dead, Adams as vice president could not be spared, Hamilton's fiery temper was dangerous no one could accomplish the delicate mission so well as jay, jay, self-centered and calm, said Little but in compliance with Washington's wish resigned his office, and set sail with full powers to use his own judgment in everything, and the assurance that any treaty he made would be ratified. Arriving in England, he at once opened negotiations with Lord Grenville, and in five months the new treaty was signed. It provided for the payment to American citizens for losses of private shipping during the war, and over $10 million were paid to citizens of the United States under this agreement. It fixed the boundary line between the state of Maine and Canada, provided for the surrender of British posts in the far west, that neither nation was to allow enlistments within its territory by a third nation at war with another, arranged for the surrender of fugitives charged with murder, or forgery, and made definite terms as to various minor, but nonetheless important, questions. A storm of opposition greeted the treaty when its terms were made known in America. Jay was accused of bartering away the rights of America and indignation meetings were held, because Jay had not insisted on apologies, and set sums of indemnity on this, that and the other, nevertheless, Washington ratified the treaty, and when Jay arrived in America there was a greeting fully as cordial and generous as that on the occasion of his other homecoming, in fact, while he was absent, his friends had put him in nomination as governor of New York, his election to that office occurred just two days before he arrived, and when he landed his senses were demystified by hearing loud hurrahs for, Governor Jay, when his term of office expired he was re-elected, so he served as governor, in all, six years, the most important measure carried out during that time was the abolition of slavery in the state of New York, an act he had strenuously insisted on for twenty years, but which was not made possible until he had the power of governor, and crowded the measure upon the legislature, Over a quarter of a century had passed since John Adams and John Jay had met on horseback out there on the New Jersey Turnpike. Their intimacy had been continuous and their labors as important as ever engrossed the minds of men. But in it all there was neither jealousy nor bickering. They were their friends. At the close of Jay's gubernatorial term, President Adams nominated him for the office of Chief Justice. Made vacant by the resignation of Oliver Ellsworth, the Senate unanimously confirmed the nomination. But Jay refused to accept the place. For twenty-eight years he had served his country served it in its most trying hours. He was not an old man in years. But the severity and anxiety of his labors had told on his health. And the elasticity of youth had gone from his brain forever. He knew this. And feared the danger of continued exertion. My best work is done. He said, if I continue I may undo the good I have accomplished. I have earned a rest. He retired to the ancestral farm at Bedford, Westchester County, to enjoy his vacation. In a year, his wife died, and the shock told on his already shattered nerves. The habit of reticence grew upon him, says one writer, until he could not be tricked into giving an opinion even about the weather. And so he lived out his days as a partial recluse, deep in problems of raising watermelons and sheep that would not jump fences. He worked with his hands, wore blue jeans. Voted at every town election. But to a great degree lived only in the past. The problems of church and village politics and farm life filled his declining days. To a great degree his physical health came back. But the problems of statecraft he left to other heads and hands. His religious nature manifested itself in various philanthropic schemes. And the Bible society he founded endures even unto this day. These things afforded a healthful exercise for that tireless brain which refused to run down his daughters made his home ideal, their love and gentleness suiting his declining years, death to him was kindly, gathering him as autumn, the messenger of winter, reaps the leaves, no one has ever made the claim that Jay possessed genius, he had something which is better, though, for most of the affairs of life, and that is common sense, in his intellect there was not the flash of Hamilton, nor the creative quality possessed by Jefferson, nor the large all-roundness of Franklin, He was the average man who has trained and educated and made the best use of every faculty and every opportunity. He was genuine, he was honest, and if he never surprised his friends by his brilliancy, he surely never disappointed them through duplicity. He made no promises that he could not keep, he held out no vain hopes. As a diplomat he seems merely the ideal. We have been taught that the line of demarcation between diplomacy and in truth is very shadowy. But truth is very good policy and in the main answers the purpose much better than the other thing. I am quite willing to leave the matter to those who have tried both. We cannot say that Jay was magnetic. For magnetic men win the rabble, but Jay did better. He won the confidence and admiration of the strong and discerning. His manner was gentle and pleasing, his words few. And as a listener he set a pace that all novitiates in the school of diplomacy would do well to follow. To talk well is a talent. But to listen is a fine art if I really wish to win the love of a man I practice the art of listening even though people often talk well when there is someone near who cultivates the receptive mood and to please a man you must give him an opportunity to be both wise and witty men are pleased with their friends when they are pleased with themselves and no man is ever so pleased with himself as when he has expressed himself well the sympathetic listener at a lecture or sermon is the only one who gets his money's worth if you would get good Lend your sympathy to a speaker, and if, accidentally, you imbibe heresy, you can easily throw it overboard when you get home. John Jay was quiet and in demonstrative in speech, cultivating a fine reserve. In debate he never fired all his guns, and his best battles were to one with the powder that was never exploded. You had always better keep a small balance to your credit, he once advised a young attorney, when the first Congress met. Jay was not in favor of complete independence from England. He asked only for simple justice, and said, the middle course is best. He listened to John Adams and Patrick Henry and quietly discussed the matter with Samuel Adams, but it was some time before he saw that the density of King George was hopeless, and that the work of complete separation was being forced upon the colonies by the blindness and stupidity of the British Parliament. He then accepted the issue. During those first days of the Revolution, New York did not stand firm, as did Boston, for the cause of independence, the foes at home are the only ones I really fear, once wrote Hamilton, first to pacify and placate, then to win and hold those worse than neutrals, was the work of John Jay, while Washington was in the field, Jay, with tireless pen, upheld the cause, and by his speech and presence kept anarchy at bay, as president of the Committee of Safety he showed he could do something more than talk and write. When Tories refused to take the oath of allegiance he quietly wrote the order to imprison or banish, and with friend, thorkinsman kinsmen there was neither dalliance nor turning aside, his heart was in the cause his property, his life, the time for argument had passed, in the gloom that followed the defeat of Washington at Brooklyn, Jay issued an address to the people that is a classic and its fine, stern spirit of hope and strength, Congress had the address reprinted and sent broadcast, and also translated and printed in German, his work divides itself by a strange coincidence into three equal parts, 28 years were passed in youth and education, 28 years in continuous public work, and 28 years in retirement and rest, as one of that immortal 10, mentioned by a great English statesman, who gave order, dignity, stability and direction to the cause of American independence, the name of John Jay is secure. William H. Seward I avow my adherence to the Union, with my friends, with my party, with my state, or without either, as they may determine, in every event of peace or war, with every consequence of honor or dishonor, of life or death. Speech in the United States Senate, 1861 I was a freshman at the Little Red Schoolhouse. The last exercise in the afternoon was spelling. The larger pupil stood in a line that ran down one aisle and curled clear around the stove. Well do I remember one winter when the biggest boy in the school stood at the tail end of the class most of the time, while at the head of the line, or all was very near it, was a freckled, check apron girl, who once at a spell and had defeated even the teacher. This girl was ten years older than myself, and I was then too small to spell with this first grade, but I watched the daily fight of wrestling with such big words as, An intent I on ally, and MIS and dare stand in and long for a day when I too, should take part and possibly stand next to this fine, smart girl, who often smiled at me approvingly, and I planned how I would hold her hand as we would stand there in line and mentally dare the master to come on with his dictionary, we two would be the smartest scholars of the school and always help each other in our sums, yet one time had pushed me into the line, she of the check apron was not there, and even if she had been I should not have dared to hold her hand, But I must not digress. The particular thing I wish to explain is that one day at recess, the best scholar was in tears, and I went to her and asked what was the matter. And she told me that some of the big girls had openly declared that she, my fine freckled girl, the check apron, the invincible, held her place at the head of the school only through favoritism. I burned with rage and resentment, and proposed fight. Then I burst out crying, and together we mingled our tears. All this was long ago. Since then I have been in many climes, and met many men, and read history a bit I hope not without profit, and this I have learned, that the person who stands at the head of his class be he country lad or presidential candidate is always the target for calumny and the unkindness of contemporaries who can neither appreciate nor understand. Not long ago I spent several days at Auburn, New York, so named by some pioneer who, when the 19th century was very young. Journeyed thitherward with a copy of Goldsmith's, Deserted Village, in his pack. Auburn is a flourishing city of thirty thousand inhabitants. It has beautiful wide streets, lined with elms that in places form an archway. There are churches to spare and schools galore and handsome residences. Then there are electric cars and electric lights and dynamos, with which men electrocute other men in the wink of an eye. I saw the, Thindis yekla guillotine and sat in the chair and the jubilant patentee told me that it was the quickest scheme for extinguishing life ever invented. patented did O 1895. Verily we lied in the age of the push button, and as I sat there I heard a laugh that was a quaver, and the sound of a stout cane emphasizing a jest struck against the stone floor. We didn't have such things when I was a boy, came the tremulous voice, and then the newcomer explained to me that he was 87 years old last May. And that he well remembered a time when a plain oaken and gallows and a strong rope were good enough for Auburn, provided Bill Seward didn't get the fellow free. Added my newfound friend. Then the old man explained that he used to be a guard on the walls. And now he had a grandson who occupied the same office. And in answer to my question said he knew Seward as though he were a brother. Bill. He was the luckiest man ever in Auburn. He married rich and tumbled over bags of money if he just walked on the street. He believed in neither God nor devil and had a pompous way of making folks think he knew all about everything. To make folks think you know is just as well as to know, I suppose. And the old man laughed and struck his cane on the echoing floor of the cell. The sound and the place and the company gave me a creepy feeling. And I excused myself and made my way out past armed guards, through doorways where iron bars clicked and snapped, and steel bolts that held in a thousand men shot back to let me out out into a freer air and a better atmosphere, and as I passed through the last overhanging arch where a one-armed guard wearing a G.A.R. badge turned a needlessly big key, there came and I across my inward sight a vision of a check apron girl in tears, sobbing with head on desk, and I said to myself, yes, yes, country girl or statesman, you shall drink the bitter potion that is the penalty of success drink it to the very dregs, if you would escape moral and physical assassination, do nothing. Say nothing, be nothing court of security, for only in oblivion does safety lie. All mud sticks, but no mud is immortal, and that senile fling at the name of Seward is the last flickering, dying word of detraction that can be heard in the town that was his home for full half a century, or in the land he served so well. And yet it was in Auburn that mob spirit once found a voice, and when Seward was Lincoln's most helpful advisor, and his sons were at the front serving the country's cause. Cries of, burn his house, burn his house, came to the distracted ears of wife and daughter, but all that has gone now. In fact, denial that calumny was ever offered to the name of Seward springs quickly to the lips of Auburn men, as they point with pride to that beautiful old home where he lived, and where now his son resides, and then they lead you, with a reverence that nearly uncovers, to the stately bronze standing on the spot that was once his garden now a park belonging to the people time marks wondrous changes, and the city where William Lloyd Garrison lived in, a red hole, as reported by Boston's mayor, now honors Commonwealth Avenue with this statue, and so the sons of Seward's enemies have devoted willing dollars to preserving, that classic face and spindling form, in deathless bronze, and they do well, for Seward's name and fame are Auburn's glory, I may be mistaken, but it seems to me that all the worry of the world is quite useless. And on no subject affecting mortals is there so much worry as on that of not love, parents' ambitions for their children, when the gentle darling toddles and lisps and chatters. The satisfaction he gives is an alloy, for he is so small and insignificant, his demands so imperious, that the entire household dance attendance on the wee tyrant and count it joy. But by and by the things at which we used to laugh become presumptuous, and that which was once funny is now perverse and the more practical a man-island the larger his stock of Connecticut common sense, the greater his disillusionment as his children grow to manhood, when he beholds dawdling inanity and dowdy vanity growing lush as Jimson, where yesterday, with strained prophetic vision, he saw budding excellence and worth, his soul is wrung by a worry that knows no peace, the matter is so poignantly personal that he dare not share it with another in confessional, and so he hugs his grief to his heart, and tries to hide it even from himself, and thus does many a mother scrub the kitchen floor on her knees, rather than face the irony of maternity and ask the assistance of th.